Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. A key dam has collapsed in southern Ukraine today, raising fears of widespread flooding in the region. NPR's Greg Myrie reports it also adds to the risks facing a nearby nuclear power plant occupied by Russian troops. Video images show water surging through a large, collapsed section of the Kakovka Dam in southern Ukraine. President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russia is to blame, and officials say dozens of cities, towns, and villages downstream are in immediate danger of flooding. Russia, in turn, is blaming Ukraine. Neither side provided proof to back their claims. In addition, the dam created a large reservoir used to cool the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant about 100 miles upriver. That reservoir is now shrinking rapidly. Ukrainian and United Nations officials say they're concerned and are closely monitoring the nuclear plant, which is under the control of Russian troops. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kyiv. South Korea's military says Chinese and Russian warplanes have intruded into the nation's air defense zone without notice. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Seoul. Similar incursions took place last year and in 2019 when South Korean aircraft fired warning shots. South Korea's military says it dispatched fighter jets to the area after four Chinese and four Russian warplanes entered its air defense identification zone. South Korea says the planes did not enter its territorial airspace, which is separate from the identification zone. Foreign planes are supposed to identify themselves before entering, but China and Russia say they don't recognize the zones. China's defense ministry said it conducted joint patrols with Russia over the East China Sea and Sea of Japan Tuesday as part of an annual cooperation plan. The incursions are seen by some as a show of force against the U.S. and its allies. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is expected to announce today that he is running for the Republican presidential nomination. It's not clear how popular he will be with GOP voters. He is focused on opposing former President Donald Trump. New Hampshire Public Radio's Josh Rogers says Christie will launch his campaign in New Hampshire, where he previously ran a targeted campaign for president. In 2016, he basically focused his entire campaign here. He did the things that you purportedly need to do to to be successful here. He started early. He did a lot of retail campaigning. He took whatever question voters cared to ask him, but he did end up finishing sixth here and then dropped out of the race. Josh Rogers reporting. Former Vice President Mike Pence is expected to publicly launch his presidential bid tomorrow. Smoke from several Canadian wildfires continues to drift south into the U.S., The National Weather Service has issued air quality alerts today across New England and down into Maryland. You're listening to NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Massachusetts lawmakers need to figure out how much money the state may owe to the federal government. The state accidentally used $2.5 billion in federal funds to pay for state unemployment benefits. That money should have come from the state. Governor Maura Healey says multiple funds were set up early in the pandemic to address COVID issues and that some state and federal funds got merged by accident. As with anything, you identify an issue and you're going to take steps to make sure that doesn't happen again. And um, I am confident that that the right steps have been taken to make sure that won't happen again. Healy says she's trying to find a solution with the smallest impact on the state. 
The MBTA will adopt new signs and enhance communications to improve safety along its tracks. The reforms are part of a new employee safety plan submitted to federal regulators yesterday. The first version of the plan was rejected by the feds. The revised plan includes more than two dozen specific changes. They include more supervisor oversight and increased employee training. Federal transit officials must still approve the new plan. A contamination case involving Boston-based General Electric will be in federal court today. Attorneys will argue against the EPA's plan to clean up the Housatonic River. Nancy Cohn reports the cleanup is needed because GE contaminated the river with PCBs, which can cause cancer. The EPA's cleanup plan includes digging up soil containing the toxin and dumping waste with lower concentrations in a disposal site in the town of Lee, cutting the cost for GE. Environmental groups argue the cleanup plan came out of a mediated settlement, not open to the public, and that the EPA had committed to it. But GE says the EPA offered the possibility that public comments might lead to the agency adopting a different plan. The EPA says it followed the law and responded to comments from more than 400 people. Despite opposition, the plan to dispose waste in Lee remains. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. Mark your calendars now. Registration for the 2024 Boston Marathon will open on Monday, September 11th. It'll go through the 15th or until all the spots are full. The field size will stay the same as this year's race with 30,000 runners. Race organizers say qualifying standards will also be the same as this year's. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast, OceanStateJobLot.com. And Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. The Red Sox begin a three-game series with the Guardians in Cleveland tonight. They lost to the Tampa Bay Rays yesterday afternoon 4 to 1 at Fenway. The entire region is under an air quality alert today because of smoke from wildfires in Canada. Partly sunny and hazy this morning with a chance for rain this afternoon. It'll be in the 70s. Cloudy overnight with temperatures in the 50s. Cloudy with another chance for showers tomorrow near 70. Right now it's 58 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. I'm Lisa Mullins. WBUR is here to help us all think harder. When we tell you a story, we think about how it'll touch your mind and sometimes your heart. Support journalism that has deep meaning in your life by giving monthly at WBUR.org. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR. Thank you so much for starting your Tuesday morning with us. And if you can, we're coming to you this week to ask you to give now and give monthly. That stable, reliable support from you is what makes it possible for us to plan to deliver back to you the news and information that you depend on every morning and that you want to keep coming to keep your community informed. We have a goal of making 700 listeners into monthly contributors in this 
short June fundraiser. Be one of them and do it now before you get going with your day. It'll be another great start to your day. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shinoy here with the host of Radio Boston, Tiziana Deering. Tiziana, good morning. Good morning, Rupa. You know, there are so many ways that we support each other, right? When we're in a community, we call our monthly givers sustainers. And there's a reason for that. It's because when you choose to give monthly, you're reflecting the sustained nature of the way you count on WBUR. And you're saying, I know I'm going to need you today, tomorrow, and the next day. And so I know I'm going to support you today, tomorrow, and the next day. And I know you are going to be able to count on me. We're asking you to be one of 700 people who say this week, yep, I'm going to be that one who's going to give every month uh, at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. I rely on you that way for quality news and information that I can trust. And now I'm going to let you, WBUR, rely on me to give a little bit of support every month. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Misinformation is having a profound impact on our country. We need strong voices that tell the truth and deliver the facts. WBUR amplifies those voices, and its strength is listener support. Monthly contributions to WBUR ensure that hundreds of thousands of listeners get information they need to make critical decisions every day. Not a monthly contributor yet? You can make a meaningful difference at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. When you step up now and become one of these 700 listeners that we're trying to bring on as monthly contributors, when you give $10 a month, you can get the newest WBUR t-shirt, which is a mustard yellow crew neck that you'll look great in because everyone does. And it'll remind you that this is supporting WBUR is about community. Because when you're out and you wear this t-shirt, people will stop you and thank you for being a sustainer for WBUR. They will say, I listen to WBUR too. Did you hear this story this morning? And you'll say, yeah, did you hear this one? It'll be part of this community building. That is what WBUR is about. It is about supporting your community, keeping it informed, and keeping it going. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. If I didn't say it before, there are only 320 of these t-shirts, and it's basically first come, first serve. You gotta get in while there's hot, and they're going quickly, so call now. Yeah, I love that, Rupa. You will look great in this mustard yellow cotton crew neck t-shirt. It's got the stacked WBUR uh, in black and white up and down, but you'll feel great in it, and that's really the thing, right? You'll feel great knowing that you have stepped forward to support the news and the information. That thing Lisa Mullins said at the beginning, deep meaning, right? The speaking to your head and to your heart that you rely on. You get up in the morning and one of the first things you do is turn to WBUR, turn to NPR to start your day. And it will feel great to know that you've taken this step, one of many who do, to support that move every morning. It doesn't take very much. It's $10 a month. It gets you the t-shirt. It gets you that peace of mind. But it means the world to us. And it's easy to do. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Listen, we're only doing this for a few days. We're only asking 700 people to do it. I'm asking you to take this step today and be one of those 700. 
You listen, you can take responsibility, and you can be part of what we're doing here. It will feel good, and if you give $10 a month, you will get a really great t-shirt that will help you connect to other WBUR listeners who want to be in community with you. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Another Republican launches a presidential bid today during a visit to New Hampshire. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is expected to say he's making another run for the GOP nomination. Christie, if you remember, was one of the more than a dozen Republican hopefuls in 2016 who fell by the wayside as Donald Trump stormed through the nomination process and eventually won the election. Christie did a brief stint leading Trump's transition team, but in the years since, he has become a vocal critic. We wanted to hear more about what's behind this latest move, so we called WNYC's Matt Katz, who's covered Christie for years. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Michelle. So why is he running again? You know, why not, really? If you've got a couple of billionaires to support you, and, and we think Christie does, it makes good professional sense to run for president. You, you can end up with a consolation prize like vice president, increase your name ID to get more money for those speaking gigs. Christie himself has said that, A, it's better to be relevant than ignored, and B, once you run once, as Christie has, as he said, and, and you get the sense that you can be sitting in the Oval Office, it's really hard to shake that. So hmm. Christie did terribly last time he ran, but still ended up with a paid pundit gig on ABC News and lucrative contracts as a lobbyist. He, he represented hospitals looking for COVID funds and the, and the Puerto Rican Fiscal Agency, for example. And that's all because of his ties to the Trump administration and, and his notoriety due to at least least in part to having run before. Well, you know, a recent poll shows Christie has the lowest favorability ratings of any candidate among Republican voters. So I'm wondering if he has any real path for him to win, or is this really just about one of those consolation prizes? Yeah, I mean, he is very unpopular. Um, it could be because of the scandals back in New Jersey, although I think it might have something more to do with uh, Christie having bro-hugged and said nice things about President Obama after Obama had visited the Jersey Shore um, uh, right before the 2012 election. Republican voters may remember that. There's also a viral picture from Christie's last year in office sunbathing at the governor's beach house while other state beaches were closed due to a budget stalemate between him and the legislature. So, so deeply unpopular but he's an extraordinarily effective communicator. Even though he did terribly in New Hampshire last time around, he still filled uh, town hall meetings because he's, he's, he's entertaining, he's uh, sharp, he's quick-witted, and maybe more than anybody else on that potential debate stage, he's going to be able to stick it to Trump and maybe Florida Governor DeSantis in a way that will become viral and remembered and maybe effective in voters' minds. Well, let me, let's, let's talk about that set of his... Um verbal technique, as it, as it were. He's mm-hmm. argued that he can go toe-to-toe with Trump and DeSantis. And he does seem devoted to slamming former President Trump in recent speeches. Could you tell us a little bit more about what's that about? Like, how, why did the relationship take that turn? And is this such a, like a fundamental part of his identity now? Yeah, this is something that certainly will be scrutinized because he was the first establishment Republican to endorse Trump. He's partially responsible for putting Trump into the White House. Um, But their their relationship has taken so many ups and downs. Uh, uh, Christie wanted to be Trump's running mate, wanted to be VP. He didn't get that. He wanted to be attorney general. He didn't get that. He was named Trump's transition chairman when Trump uh, got the nomination. But Trump fired him from that job, threw his plan in the garbage. 
message. But still, Christie stuck around. He was an informal advisor to Trump throughout the White House years, and he helped prepare him for the 2020 debates against Joe Biden. And, and he ended up getting COVID from Trump during that debate prep. Then January 6th happened, and that's what Christie said was basically the tipping point, and that's why he thinks Trump should not be president again. But, you know, when that change happened, was it because Trump was on the descent or was and Christie wanted to get in the White House or did Christie really have a, a moral reckoning? Um, that's something that certainly will be scrutinized by the press and voters as he tries to make this run. So before we let you go, aside from challenging the former president, what will he say he has to offer to GOP voters? He has to offer an alternative. And I think he's going to present himself as the guy who sounds like a pre-Trump Republican. So you're going to hear, you know, some hawkish foreign policy. You're going to hear fiscal conservatism. He's pro-life. Sort of those um, uh, pre, uh, those pre-Trump traditional uh, Republican talking points. And you're not going to hear him really lean into the culture wars that Trump or DeSantis would do. That is Matt Katz. He's with WNYC. And he's the author of American Governor Chris Christie's Bridge to Redemption. Matt Katz, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Michelle. Apple has introduced its first new product in a decade. The company calls it a mixed reality headset, and it's a little more expensive than an iPhone, about $3,500. NPR tech correspondent Derek Kerr followed the launch, and we should note Apple is a financial contributor to NPR. CEO Tim Cook couldn't contain his excitement at the end of Apple's big annual event for its developers. It's already been a big day, but we do have one more thing. That one more thing is called Vision Pro. It's a virtual and augmented reality headset and looks a bit like oversized ski goggles. When you wear it, you can overlay a digital world on top of a real one. So you can shop, read news articles, or FaceTime with friends. You control it with your eyes, hands, and voice. Throughout the presentation, Cook showed videos of people wearing and using the headset and described what it does. With Vision Pro, you're no longer limited by a display play. Your surroundings become an infinite canvas. VR and AR headsets have been around for years. Google Glass came out more than a decade ago. Facebook has introduced several versions of its Oculus in recent years. But these products never really took off. So a lot is at stake for Apple, which is known as a juggernaut for making products people like to use. Still, the device covers half of your face, says Bob O'Donnell. He's the president of Technalysis Research and was at the event on Monday. And you can't help but think that's a little bit isolating and awkward. Then there's the external battery pack you have to carry around. So you got a wire coming from your head to this battery pack, you know, about the size of a deck of cards, it looks like. And it only lasts two hours. And there's also the price. I asked O'Donnell the crowd's reaction when they heard it was $3,500. A lot of kind of heavy sighs and ahs. Apple seems to be trying to lure younger audiences by partnering with heavy hitters like Disney. The headset won't be available until next year. And the price tag means it's not going for the masses. LA Times tech columnist Brian Merchant joked about it on Twitter, saying, For $3,500, I will personally come to your house and move your couch closer to the TV. Dara Kerr, NPR News.
In Minnesota, a task force says black women and girls are nearly three times more likely than their white peers to die by homicide. Now, the state of Minnesota has become the first to open an office dedicated to investigating these cases. Minnesota Public Radio's Dana Ferguson has this report. Lakeisha Lee says that she and her family knew right away that something was wrong when they tried to contact her sister, Brittany Clardy, but couldn't get through. Ten years ago, Clardy went missing. When her family asked the police to file a report, officers said the 18-year-old had likely run away. Two weeks later, Clardy was found murdered in the trunk of her car. Lee says she felt the police didn't take her concerns seriously. They said, well, she just turned 18. She probably ran away with her boyfriend. And to us, we knew her. We are the experts on our family. We knew that that wasn't happening at that time because I could contact her boyfriend. I could contact her friends. Over the past couple of years, Lee has led Minnesota's task force dedicated to understanding why African-American women and girls go missing. Illinois and Wisconsin have task forces, too. But this year, Minnesota created the nation's first office to examine disparities when it comes to missing or murdered black females. The office will investigate cold cases, communicate with local agencies and community groups, and serve as a new point of contact for those reluctant to speak with police. This is a real true crisis. State Representative Ruth Richardson carried the bill that created that new office. A state task force last year found that while African-American women and girls comprised 7 percent of the population, they represented 40 percent of domestic violence victims. In Minnesota, they're also nearly three times more likely than their white peers to be murdered. One of the reasons this is so important is because when we see this data that our cases are not getting solved, our cases are not getting resources, it actually puts a target on the back of black women and girls. The task force found that law enforcement often ignores calls for help when black women go missing, and families have to organize their own search efforts. The help just isn't there. That's Verna Cornelia Price. Price runs Girls Taking Action, a mentorship program for hundreds of girls in Minneapolis. On several occasions, girls in Price's program have gone missing or called Price and her peers for help escaping violent situations. Price says it's been frustrating working on cases like these with police. The police, they're just telling us that our girl is a prostitute or she's a runaway or and taking no action. How police departments across the state handle these cases vary when black women and girls are missing. And the Minnesota chiefs of police say one problem is that the state doesn't have a centralized force focused on tracking these cases or serving as a resource to those who report them. And another problem is a lack of resources, says Sawana Kirkland. She is the vice chair for the National Association of Black Police Officers and leads a community corrections unit in a county outside the Twin Cities. I have seen an increase in incidents of violence within our communities for Black women and girls and a decrease in resources and services and dedicated efforts and supports to help solve these crimes. Lakeisha Lee, the woman who set out to start this office, says it will spur hope for families of missing and murdered Black girls in Minnesota. She also hopes it will be able to close its doors after preventing violence against them in the first place. For NPR News, I'm Dana Ferguson in St. Paul. This is NPR News. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. I'm Deepa Fernandez. From news headlines to deeper dives into issues of real consequence. From Morning Edition to All Things Considered. From stories online at WBUR.org to conversations on stage at City Space. Everything you get from WBUR depends on a solid foundation of listener support. Help us get to our June fundraiser goal to keep our journalism strong. Here's how to help. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR. You just heard about Chris Christie kicking off his campaign for president. That's important reporting as we follow the run-up to the 2024 election. Then we heard about the new virtual reality headset that Apple is launching. It merges the digital and actual world. That's the mix of reporting that makes you feel prepared for your day with the levity and sense of fun that makes it easy to go into your day. That's what we bring you every morning. And you know that. You wake up and listen, and that's why we are your companion. Now we're asking you to be a bigger part of what we're doing here for you and your community every morning. We're having a short fundraiser to bring on 700 new monthly contributors who will keep WBUR going next year and into the future. If you already give, think about talking to some of your friends who are listening now talk about talk to them about giving for the first time and then on a monthly basis that's a really great way to help us keep this important service coming to you and the people you care about give at wbur.org or call 1-800-909-9287 i'm morning edition host rupa shinoi hanging out here with radio boston host tiziana deering hanging out with rupa this morning in the morning edition community building that solid foundation that we just heard Deepa talking about because our goal this week in this very short targeted fundraiser is 700 monthly contributors. There are a lot of ways that you can and do support WBUR, whether it's showing up with a t-shirt on, and we'll tell you about that in a little bit, or it's making a contribution. This solid foundation, one of the most solid ways to build a foundation is sustainers, monthly contributors. And that's why our whole focus this week is 700 people stepping forward and saying, we will give monthly. And this morning, we, I, are asking you to be one of those 700 people. Uh, whether you can do $10 a month and get the t-shirt, uh, the average gift $16 a month, whatever per month you can do, being one of those 700 makes a really important difference for us at a time of economic uncertainty. Step forward, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. You know we're in an uncertain time. We report about it. Here's our CEO, Margaret Lowe, to tell you a little bit more about how that affects us here ourselves at WBUR. We have tens of thousands of supportive listeners, members, people who tell us that we're their lifeline, that even on the hardest news days, we remind them of their humanity. But the truth is, it's gotten harder and harder to find new members, and that scares us. I mean, it definitely keeps me up at night. Stations across the country are experiencing the same decline in the number of donors at a time when we know trustworthy information is so crucial to our collective well-being. So... My hope is that our listeners can help us buck this trend. We know that many of you listening spend more time with WBUR than you do with some of the people you love most. 
We also know that there are so many good causes to support, but if we matter in your life at all, if you can't imagine a day or a week without WBUR and NPR, we'd love to hear from you. That was our CEO, Margaret Lowe, giving it to us straight. These are tough times for a lot of people. A lot of those people are listeners, and we want them to always be able to listen, even if they can't give. You can help them and us at the same time by giving to WBUR. When you step up as a monthly contributor, you'll be making sure this important service continues for everyone in your community. And when you give $10 a month this morning, Tiziana teased this, you'll get the newest WBUR t-shirt. It's a mustard yellow crew neck that prominently says WBUR. And when you wear it, people will, who see you will know that you are responsible for what they hear on WBUR. You keep us going. But there are only 320 of these T-shirts, and you wouldn't believe how fast they go. I'm going to be getting one, so act now. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Yeah, you'll look great in it, but you'll feel great in it, knowing that it's a symbol of the way you've chosen to become part of this solid foundation of support month after month for a small gift that makes the world of difference to us and our ability to bring you what you count on every morning. You're listening right now because you count on us in the morning for the quality, the news, the information, the community, the joy that you know you need to start your day. Be one of the 700 and do it today, please. Not only just to get the t-shirt before they're gone and they will go fast, but because it's important enough that you're not gonna put it off, that you'll say, yep, today's the day, now's the moment, it's quick. 1-800-909-9287 or wbur.org. Our future's not secure without you, but with you, it can be. Give now, please. Join our monthly contributors. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from hintwater.com. From your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Officials in Moscow and Kyiv are blaming each other for the breach of a dam in southern Ukraine. The damage is prompting concerns about flooding and the safety of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which uses water from a reservoir to cool its reactors. NPR's Charles Maines has more from Moscow. Russian and Ukrainian authorities both agree the Kohovka Dam, a Soviet-era hydroelectric power station dating to the 1950s, is now beyond repair, even as the two sides assess the damage in starkly different terms. The Moscow-installed governors of occupied Kherson and Crimea said the collapse of the dam was unlikely to disrupt life for most residents, 
The Russian-backed mayor of Novokakhovka, the town closest to the dam itself, said some residents had been evacuated amid flooding, but he expected water levels to return to normal in the next 72 hours. Meanwhile, Ukrainian officials warned the waters could rise to critical levels. They announced the evacuation of tens of thousands of residents from Kherson City, the main population center, as well as surrounding villages. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Ukraine's foreign minister is calling for an urgent meeting of the U.N. Security Council to decide how to respond to the breach. World War II veterans were among those in France today to commemorate the 79th anniversary of the D-Day assault on the beaches of Normandy. It was the largest naval land and air operation in history. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The amount of tax revenue the state's brought in so far this fiscal year is nearly 2 percent lower than expected. That's despite a rebound in collections last month. On Beacon Hill, state senators say despite the drop in revenue, they'll be taking up a tax relief package soon. Here's Senate President Karen Spilka. Uh, We just got the numbers a few hours ago. We're looking at them. Uh, We are proceeding with a tax relief package. As I've said for many months, we will uh, do a tax relief package and it will be out soon. So stay tuned. Governor Healy first proposed a tax relief bill in March. House lawmakers approved their own version a few weeks later. Officials plan to move ahead on a new development on Dorchester Avenue in South Boston. Filings with the Boston Planning and Development Agency show blueprints to build 11 residential and commercial buildings. Those will be part of the new on-the-dot neighborhood development. There's no timeline for when the project will be completed. A Massachusetts community's school committee will vote tonight on a policy for school library materials. Jill Kaufman reports the plan in Ludlow is controversial, with the ACLU calling it a form of censorship. The current policy has an email option system so parents know what their kids want to take out from the library. The proposed policy would not allow certain materials to be in the libraries, including young adult novels depicting sexuality, some books about personal safety and puberty, as well as some images of art and athletes. At last month's meeting, three out of five school committee members indicated they're against the proposal made by member Joao Diaz, who said he found the policy online. He said it would stop children from seeing inappropriate and pornographic material. The proposal is almost identical to one in a Pennsylvania school district challenged by the ACLU. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. The Red Sox hope to stop their three-game losing streak tonight. They'll visit the Cleveland Guardians. The Sox lost to the Rays yesterday 4-1. to A mix of sun and clouds today, along with highs in the mid-70s. There's an air quality alert in effect because of smoke from wildfires in Canada. Late this afternoon, we may see gusty winds and scattered showers with a slight chance of hail. Tonight, mostly cloudy and temperatures fall to the mid-50s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with highs in the upper 60s. There's another chance of afternoon showers. It's 58 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From BritBox with season two of The Tower starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas, including Line of Duty and The Responder, starring Martin Freeman. 
streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. The kind of school board meeting we are about to hear could have taken place in any one of many states in recent years. In this case, the meeting was in Florida. A local school board faces pressure from above. Governor Ron DeSantis is working to reshape schools. The school board also faces pressure from outside. An activist group tried to remove the local superintendent. WUSF's Megan Bowman went to see how it turned out. It was a raucous meeting in Hernando County, just north of Tampa. On the one side, members of Moms for Liberty, the conservative group that's pushing book bans across the state. On the other hand, over a hundred people wearing green t-shirts that said hashtag Stratton stays. They showed up to support Superintendent John Stratton. They're booing board member Shannon Rodriguez. She joined the Hernando School Board last year, backed by Moms for Liberty. We do not want to have equity and inclusion in our schools. We want to keep our schools traditional the way that they were. We don't want any of the woke or the indoctrination. She's under fire for reporting a teacher to the state for showing the Disney movie Strange World, which has a gay character in it. At this meeting, Rodriguez used Florida's recently passed so-called Stop Woke Act as ammunition to remove Stratton. We have the LGBTQ training conference that we sent teachers to and paid for. We have the pornographic books that stayed in the schools forever and ever. The new law restricts discussions on gender and sexuality issues in the classroom and how race is taught. Rodriguez had reinforcements in the audience. Monty Floyd is vice chair of the Hernando County chapter of Moms for Liberty. The many failures of this district fall solely on the shoulders of Mr. Stratton, the ruling majority on our board, and their legion of hard-left agitators. But the majority of the 600 or so who showed up wanted Stratton to stay, including a 14-year-old student, Justin Caratalo. Maybe some of you have forgotten the golden rule. Maybe some of you have forgotten that gay people, people of color, and people that don't observe Christianity have existed. A recent NPR poll shows a majority of respondents said teachers should be trusted to make decisions about what they're teaching. But more Republicans than Democrats believe parents should have that power. The same poll shows book bans are not popular, even with Republicans. The battle over who controls the classrooms in Florida is having an effect on staffing, says Lisa Mazzario. She's the president of a local teachers association and told the board the number of resignations of educators has doubled since since last year. There have been politically motivated attacks from the state level from certain elements within our community and from local politicians affecting morale and making educators question whether this is the right place for them. Losing dozens of teachers has detrimental effects on our students. After hours of public comments, the board decided to keep Stratton in a close 3-2 to two vote. Resistance to the Stop Woke Act in more liberal parts of Florida is nothing new. But Hernando County generally leans more conservative. Superintendent Stratton says he now hopes for a ceasefire in the rhetoric and infighting. We want to do our jobs. I'm thankful for everyone out there that summer's coming so we can reset and get something back on track. Because we're not fighting porn. We're not fighting indoctrination. We're not fighting these things. The battle over who will control schools is likely to continue in Florida in 2024. Voters will decide if school board elections will be partisan. For NPR News, I'm Megan Bowman in Tampa.
and the world of crypto, another major company is in trouble. Binance, like finance but with a B, Binance operates the world's largest platform for trading cryptocurrencies, and now it's facing a massive lawsuit from the Securities and Exchange Commission. NPR's David Gura is with us now to tell us more. David, good morning. Hey, Michelle. What is Binance accused of? So this company faces more than a dozen charges, some of which are quite serious, Michelle, in a complaint that is more than 100 pages long. And when you dig into it, Binance is accused of misleading customers, of steering their money to another company that's controlled by Binance's CEO, and of putting investors' assets at risk, according to the SEC, which describes Binance as an opaque web of corporate entities that does business around the world. And interestingly, It has no fiscal headquarters anywhere, which may sound unusual, but this is how many crypto companies operate. They believe there's no need for a headquarters, there are no borders, there's no need for government oversight. Binance's chief executive, who goes by his initials, CZ, says Binance's headquarters is wherever he's sitting. Uh, Regulators have gotten fed up with this, and what the SEC alleges broadly, Michelle, is CZ and Binance have violated and continue to violate the law. You you said that that the complaint is 100 pages long, but of those charges, are there some that stand out? Yeah, several of these have to do with Binance not complying with regulations. The SEC says the company has made a deliberate decision not to register with the SEC, and you know, this gets to the heart of the battle. The The head of the SEC, Gary Gensler, often says that crypto is like the Wild West. And if you play out that metaphor, Gensler sees himself as the sheriff. You know, like I said, crypto companies envision a future with a financial system that's not government regulated. But Gensler wants to impose order and have crypto companies operate under existing securities laws. Lee Reiners teaches cryptocurrency law at Duke University. He had been, in essence, warning the crypto industry for the better part of a year and giving them an opportunity to come in and get, you know, in compliance and to register with the SEC. And, you know, that is not something the crypto industry took him up on. Now, recently, Gensler has been saying the runway for crypto companies to come into compliance is running out. And something Reiner's told me is this lawsuit is a pretty sure sign there is no runway left. And we're seeing Binance customers getting skittish, Michelle. They've withdrawn hundreds of millions of dollars worth of crypto from Binance since these charges were announced, according to the blockchain data firm Nansen. Could you say more about the company, how it fits into the world of crypto? Yeah, Binance may not be a household name, but if you're in crypto, you'll know it. This is a company that's a little like a crypto supermarket. (laughs) Um, It has a little bit of everything. It runs two large exchanges where you can buy and sell cryptocurrency. But Binance is also a brokerage. It clears trades. There are funds that are affiliated with it. Binance is big, and it's only gotten bigger since FTX imploded just a few months ago. And does the collapse of FTX relate to what we're seeing here? Absolutely. Yeah, these two companies were rivals. CZ famously balked when FTX asked him for a bailout when FTX was on the brink of bankruptcy. But beyond that, FTX's collapse changed regulators' approach to crypto, Michelle. It was catalytic. Since then, the SEC has gone after a lot of crypto companies. The SEC recently sent a warning to Coinbase saying it's under investigation. So this Binance lawsuit is not going to be the last. There are going to be more fights ahead, including civil suits like this one. And of course, there's the criminal trial against FTX's founder, Sam Bankman-Fried. That's scheduled to start in October. And if he's found guilty, he could spend the rest of his life in prison. That is NPR's David Gura. David, thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. WBUR supporters include Babson College. 
The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA. Have you ever wondered how you would feel if tomorrow you woke up and public radio was just gone? Oh, man. That would be tough. I think it would be devastating. Well, I would grieve because there would be no replacement for it. We asked listeners around the country that very question. I've been listening to NPR for a long time. So NPR has been a giant part of my life. And I would be devastated if it wasn't there anymore. It would be a very depressing ride to work. I don't know if there's enough cups of coffee in the world that would be able to get me over that. There, there really is nothing else like it. We donate, but there's a lot of people out there that listen that probably don't donate. And I think uh, that's a really great thing to put into perspective is how would you feel? There's an easy way to feel good about public radio and the financial health of your station. Just support it. Really, do it right now. Call or go online. Your tax-deductible contribution will help ensure public radio isn't going anywhere. It'll be here when you turn on your radio tomorrow. And thanks. This is Morning Edition on WBUR. We're in our short June fundraiser when we're asking 700 people to come on board as monthly contributors. And when you give, you get a lot, beginning with the peace of mind of knowing that you have done what you can to keep your community informed. You'll be showing that you value unbiased, not-for-profit, independent journalism. That's rare in the current news environment. And it takes you stepping up to make sure it continues and grows. Because when WBUR is strong, you are strong and your community is strong. So please give at WBUR.org or call one 800 90 I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and you get to hang out with her every day, but I feel pretty lucky this morning. (laughs) I'm sitting across the table from Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering. Good morning. It's so great to be with you. I was just thinking about those NPR listeners, one of them saying there's nothing else like it. I think part of the reason that all of us here at WBUR love to be here at WBUR is we too know there's nothing else like it. There's no other place we could be to practice the kind of journalism Mm -hmm. that we value so deeply, Rupa, right? Absolutely. And so we're asking you to become sustainers. We call our monthly givers sustainers for a reason, because that reliable, we can plan on it month after month gift sustains us in a different way. You know, Rupa, Rupa, you said yesterday, we all need to know what we can budget for, right? We know our rent's coming every month, our utilities, our sustainers, let us know what we can budget for. It's huge for us. Um, And we're asking 700 people, that's you, if you have not done that, you've never given that monthly gift, we're asking you to be one of those 700. But we need to crank it up now. We need people calling every hour and doing that between now and the end of the fundraiser at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. WBUR welcomes the conversation. There's always room for everyone to have a voice, whether it's a college student or an expert in the field. There's equal value given to everyone's opinion. There's definitely a community of listeners and people who I respect and admire and like to talk to. Very often things will come up about, you know, did you hear about so-and-so on BUR this morning? Did you hear about what happened? Did you hear about this story? Did you hear that interview? So it is a common connecting point. I feel like I am part of a larger community. I've never met these other people, but I feel like I'm connected with them, like aligned with a common purpose. We all want a thoughtful, deep, examined way of living. 
So I really believe in the mission of WBUR and the strength that is created when we all give our own little part. Strengthen your community. Give monthly at WBUR.org. Ongoing monthly contributions provide the funding and stability that we need to do the planning to bring you the stories and conversations you count on. And these are stories that have a direct impact on your life, stories that you need to know and your community needs to know. Be part of making sure those stories continue. When you do that by giving $10 a month this morning, you'll get a mustard yellow crew neck t-shirt that will show everyone who sees you that you value keeping your community informed. That's right. They will thank you for stepping up to support this service for people who maybe aren't in a place where they can give right now. But you have to act fast because there are only 320 of these t-shirts. If you get one, you will know that you only, you have a precious commodity. So please give at WBUR.org or call one 800 9 Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. In the 1980s, the action in action movies went to a whole nother level. There were big blockbusters that really leaned into a lot of things, including the Cold War with the Soviet Union. I think a lot of it was to do with the climate at the time. With America just had Vietnam, Watergate. It was a very uncertain time. And then these action stars arrive and they were bringing something else to the table. They were so confident. They were so indestructible. And you have Chuck Norris recreating Vietnam, but actually winning. That's Nick Nassemly, an author of a new book called The Last Action Heroes. In it, he focuses on eight action stars. Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Steven Seagal, Dolph Lundgren, Chuck Norris, and Jackie Chan. They drew first blood, not me. I'll be back. Welcome to the party, pal! But Sly and Arnold are clearly the straws that stir this alpha male movie star cocktail. They're kind of the titans who are still yet to be surpassed in the genre, and they're still at it. You know, they're both just starred in their own TV series, which is the first for each. But yeah, they were really the guys who started it all. Sly kind of started the whole one-man army thing in a way. And then Arnold came shortly afterwards, Conan the Barbarian and the Terminator, and they just became instantly iconic. The absolute impact that those two had on pop culture, I just don't think we've seen it since. If they wrote the playbook, what is the playbook for what they wrote? Well, one-liners, body counts, the whole kind of one-man army model. I mean, people were doing it beforehand. You'd had Clint Eastwood and you had, you know, Charles Bronson in Death Wish. Bruce Lee was doing his thing. So people had done it before, but I think they just perfected the formula. How did some of the others in your book find their places in this testosterone tinsel town? Well, Stallone and Schwarzenegger kind of blazed the trail, like I said, and they they just came charging into Hollywood and were just two insanely powerful forces that kind of changed everything. And then in their wake, you had people coming in, Chuck Norris, not the best at acting, but he kind of carved out this niche for himself as the kind of the karate guy. And then you had Jean-Claude Van Damme, 
you had Steven Seagal, both had very different personas, but kind of variations on the theme. And then you had Bruce Willis, who arrived kind of fully formed with Die Hard, which he wasn't really meant to be in. They kind of put him in it as a last minute, you know, we haven't got anyone else because so many people were turning down that film. But Die Hard turned out to be such a phenomenon that it actually transformed the whole action genre. Yeah, Bruce Willis is the one that really sticks out to me of the eight uh, in your book because he doesn't have that massive muscle-bound physique. He doesn't have world-class martial arts skills. He's just kind of this wisecracking bro. Uh, So how was he able to make that into an iconic action hero persona? Well, that was kind of it. That was kind of the thing that was seen as a weakness at the time turned out to be the biggest strength because, you know, he wasn't a gym guy. He was, you know, a guy who had a deal with Seagram's wine coolers. <laughs> and he was like the party guy. I remember that. Seagram's golden wine cooler. It's wet and it's dry. My, 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 my. It's a great ad. It's hard to get out your head once you hear it. He was slimmer than those other guys. He wasn't a Schwarzenegger. He wasn't a Stallone. He was like kind of a regular looking guy, more or less. It changed the game, really. It kind of opened up the action genre when that became a big success because he was playing a character who was not only kind of relatable in physique, but also vulnerable. You know, there's a scene in Die Hard where he cries, which is unimaginable for a Schwarzenegger or Stallone at the time. They just wouldn't have gone near that role. In the wake of Die Hard, you saw all of these films where the heroes suddenly were more vulnerable. And then you saw Keanu Reeves, you saw Wesley Snipes, you saw these more regular guys who weren't always in the gym bodybuilding become the new wave of action heroes. Yeah, so this new wave, how are action heroes that came after different or the same? Because outside of Jackie Chan, uh, the names on, on your in your book, Nick, are all white dudes. That was kind of the Hollywood of the time. There were people there who definitely had the talent but didn't get the opportunities. I'm a huge fan of Carl Weathers, um, obviously Apollo Creed in the Rocky films, but he's also in a really fun 80s movie called Action Jackson. He did that, but then he didn't get any other opportunities, so he kind of went to TV. And it was, unfortunately, it wasn't a time of diversity and inclusivity. It was the white guys. And Jackie Chan, I kind of chart it in the book, but he tried to get into Hollywood like three times, and he's just absolutely incredible action. The stuff he could do for real was mind-blowing, and it took him so long to really get the breaks that he deserved. Since the era when these guys kind of ruled supreme, as great as they were, I think it's great that people have got more opportunities now and you have much more diversity. You've got Michelle Yeoh last year in Everything Everywhere All at Once, who was around at that time, but certainly not given a break in Hollywood. And it's great that last year she finally got one. Nick, I was a a very small, scrawny teen when these action heroes were pumping out their movies, and they all really deeply influenced how I felt about my lack of muscles and also what society deemed to value about masculinity. How much responsibility do you think they should have for the images that they spawned? I mean, it's hard to pinpoint with any specificity what impact they had pumping out these movies where you can solve all your problems just by punching people in the head and you know firing a gun at them probably does have some kind of impact. I talked to one of the makers of Commando, which is one of Arnold's most insanely violent films of the 80s. In fact, they pumped up the body count in that film to complete with one of Stallone's Rambo films. They wanted to have a higher body count, so they went and counted how many people die, added more. Commando ended up being watched in Africa, by it was shown to child soldiers to kind of pump them up for battle. 
So, I mean, it definitely, you know, they had an influence in some ways positive, probably in some ways not so positive. And certainly some of these movies veer into what you'd call toxic masculinity. I think you look at Seagal movies, what the director of Die Hard, John McTiernan, calls, you know, um, fascist movies. And they probably don't have a great impact on pop culture. Some of them do, some of them don't. Nick DeSemlian's new book is called The Last Action Heroes, The Triumphs, Flops, and Feuds of Hollywood's Kings of Carnage. Nick, thank you very much. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. We warm up to the mid-70s today, and it'll be partly sunny, but there's a chance of scattered showers this late this afternoon and evening. Tonight it falls to the mid-50s. Tomorrow, back down to the upper 60s with another chance of rain in the afternoon. Right now it's 61 degrees in Boston at 757. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, partnering with Mass Audubon to protect climate-resilient landscapes. MathWorks.com slash Mass Audubon. Thanks for listening to Morning Edition this morning on WBUR. We're in our short June fundraiser asking 700 people to come on as monthly contributors. When you become one of those people, you will be making the vital journalism you hear every morning on WBUR possible. WBUR is a listener-supported public good. We will always be free and open to anyone and everyone, and we do that thanks to you, our listeners who support our work voluntarily. So please give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering. Good morning, Rupa, and good morning to you, Morning Edition community. It's a short fundraiser. It's a strategic targeted fundraiser, but that doesn't mean it's not a critical fundraiser. We rely on all forms of support. Our monthly sustainers are a key piece of that. Those monthly contributions let us know what we can plan for. And monthly contributors choose that form of support because day after day, week after week, month after month, you turn to WBUR. You plan on us. You count on us, and monthly contributors decide this is the way to return the support. It's a small gift. In fact, right now, a gift of $10 a month gets you a WBUR t-shirt. There are only a handful of them. Rupa will tell you a little bit more about that. Wearing it will make you feel great because you know you've made a commitment that matches your relationship to this station. You start your day with us because we're important to you. I am asking you to be one of the people that shifts the way you support us to monthly because it matters so much for our future. We're not guaranteed without you. 1-800-909-9287 and WBUR.org. I really think everyone is going to look great in this T-shirt if they get it. There are only 320, so people And there to... are less than that now. People are snatching them yeah, up. Yeah, I need to get the, the most recent number. So you have to act quickly. But I can imagine this looks great going out for a run 
or stick it under a blazer, wear it to a meeting. Anyone who sees it will know that you support WBUR and will thank you for doing so because this is an important public service that keeps your community informed. And when you are a part of that, people are grateful. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. It's mustard yellow. It's a crew neck. It's super comfortable. You will look great in it. And people who listen will thank you because it, lots of people can't listen, can't give right now, but they listen and they want to keep listening. And we need to keep this service there for them. So you need to give to keep it going and you'll get a great T-shirt and you'll look good while you're giving. WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You'll feel great and thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A major dam has been breached in southern Ukraine and water is gushing out. There's a serious concern of flooding in the region. The Ukrainian government is accusing Russia of blowing up the dam so that it will be harder for Ukrainian forces to cross the Dnipro River. Yuri Sak is an advisor to the Ukrainian Defense Ministry. We understand that what is happening is Russia's desperate attempt to somehow influence our plans, our offensive. They are in panic, they're desperate, and they're committing atrocities. But Russia contradicts that claim. A Kremlin spokesman says Ukraine carried out a diversionary act to damage the dam. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is flying to Saudi Arabia for talks. Topping his agenda is a U.S. effort to help normalize relations between the Saudi government and Israel. Blinken admits that will be difficult. He's also seeking to discuss Iran. Saudi Arabia and Iran recently normalized diplomatic relations. Iranian state media say the military has a new hypersonic missile that can travel at 15 times the speed of sound. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports that claim comes amid heightened tensions between Washington and Tehran. Iranian media are reporting on what's being billed as the country's first domestically produced hypersonic missile. It's called the Fatah, or Conqueror. Iranian state TV showed a purported model of the missile being unveiled before President Ibrahim Raisi. It reportedly has a range of up to roughly 870 miles. Iran also has ballistic missiles with a range of up to 1,200 miles, which the Iranian military calls a key deterrent and retaliatory weapon against its enemies, including Israel and the United States. Tehran has long denied seeking nuclear weapons, but has yet to fully explain uranium traces found at three undisclosed sites in Iran. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. The House Oversight Committee plans to hold FBI Director Christopher Wray in contempt of Congress. NPR's Claudia Grisales reports the move comes after Republicans say they did not get a document tied to a probe into President Biden and his family. House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer says his panel will vote to hold Ray in contempt because the FBI did not turn over the document of interest. Given the severity and complexity of the allegations contained within this record, Congress must investigate further. 
But top oversight Democrat Jamie Raskin argued Comer is asking for a physical copy after the two already reviewed the document privately. So they keep relocating the goalposts in order to find some reason to hold the FBI director in contempt of Congress for the first time in American history. The plan could trigger a full House vote to hold Ray in contempt. Claudia Grisales, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Healy says her administration is working with federal labor officials over the state's improper use of federal funds. Those funds were used to pay unemployment claims at the start of the pandemic. WBUR Steve Brown reports Massachusetts could be on the hook for $2.5 billion. The governor says there were multiple funds set up in early 2020 to address COVID issues. For some reason, money for unemployment claims in Massachusetts was drawn from a federal pot instead of a state pot. Healy says at the time, different programs had evolving requirements. Other states experienced similar complications and difficulties, and it's something that's the subject of discussion now, you know, between um, us um, and other states and the U.S. Department of Labor. But again, I want to work to make sure that we are... Uh, is protected as much as possible. As to whether legislative action will be needed, House Speaker Ron Mariano says the state doesn't even know how much is owed, adding it's got to begin by getting a bill from the feds. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. An air quality alert is in effect across our state today. That's because of smoke coming in from wildfires in the Canadian provinces of Quebec and Ontario. National Weather Service meteorologist Rob Megnia says you may even smell the smoke today. For the most part, I think people will just probably see some hazy skies. But unusually sensitive people, maybe with severe respiratory illnesses or severe asthma, may consider uh, reducing prolonged activity or heavy exertion while outdoors today. The air quality alert is in effect until tomorrow. A second wind company wants to cancel its contract to build turbines off the coast of Massachusetts. South Coast Wind says the project costs too much now for the contract it signed to be viable. The company hopes it can file a new bid this summer. Commonwealth Wind filed a similar motion last year that was rejected. The move to make the company keep its original contract is under appeal. We're getting a sneak peek at the future of the Holocaust Holocaust Museum and Education Center in Boston. The six-story building will be on Tremont Street near the Common. It'll feature a large window displaying a rail car used to deport Jews during the Holocaust. Jody Kipnis is the museum's co-founder. She says people will be able to see the rail car from the Freedom Trail. We really spent some time thinking about the Freedom Trail and, you know, how would we fit the design of the exterior and some of the exhibits as well and tie that into the Freedom Trail. But once we acquired the rail car, I knew right away it had to be seen from the Freedom Trail. Kipnis says the museum aims to open in 2026. In sports, the Red Sox begin a week-long road trip tonight. They'll visit the Cleveland Guardians. The Sox ended their homestand yesterday with a 4-1 to loss to the Tampa Bay Rays. Partly sunny and hazy this morning with a chance for rain this afternoon. It'll be in the 70s. Cloudy overnight with temperatures in the 50s. Cloudy with another chance for showers tomorrow near 70. Right now it's 62 degrees in Boston at 807. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Schooner Grace Bailey. You can sail the coast of Maine 
with Brooklyn Nine-Nine and The Good Place actor Mark Evan Jackson. Learn more at salegracebailey.com. You know that phrase, strength in numbers? That's how WBUR really works. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. WBUR's journalism thrives through the collective contributions of tens of thousands of listeners each year. Join us during this brief but important fundraiser. Help us meet our June fundraiser goal by making a monthly contribution now. Here's how you can contribute. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thanks for listening to Morning Edition this morning on WBUR. If you're just waking up and getting going on this Tuesday morning, I'll get you up to speed real quickly. We're in our short June fundraiser asking 700 people to come on as monthly contributors. When you become one of those people, you will be making it possible for WBUR to keep providing the journalism that is essential to our lives today and tomorrow. And this hour, we have an added incentive. We have a triple match from some members of our Murrow Society. They gave their money to match your support. They want to encourage you to become a monthly contributor by 9 o'clock. So people give an average of $16 a month. That becomes $48 a month for the next year. $100 a month becomes $300 a month. So act this hour. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Radio Boston host T.C. Hanna-Deering. Good morning, T.C. Good morning, Rupa. Yep, it's a short fundraiser where we are seeking to add to the number of people who are monthly givers. And some members of our Murrow Society have said, yeah, we don't want to take anything for granted here. So, hey... You come to the table, we'll come with you. And it's so important that we hit our stride early, fast, on this quick summer fundraiser that we'll do a triple match this morning until 9 a.m. They're not messing around. (laughs) Come to the table, be one of 700 people who says, I will sustain this organization by giving a little bit every month. The average gift, as Rupa said, is $16 a month. But if you do that right now, it is $48 a month for the next year. That makes a huge, huge difference for us. If everybody does a little bit and these members of the Moreau Society triple it for the next year, can you imagine? Imagine what what that would do for your own spending power. 1-800-909-9287 and WBUR.org because we don't want to take anything for granted. I'm Leila Faldin. We've learned that we can't take our democracy for granted. Journalism in the public interest, journalism that is the heart of WBUR, keeps democracy thriving. Member dollars give WBUR the time to pursue stories that can take months of investigation. These stories often reveal uncomfortable truths, truths that can lead to meaningful change. It all starts with member dollars. Not a member yet? Give today at WBUR.org. There are so many reasons to give this morning. First, like you heard right there, our democracy, what you hear on WBUR, keeps you informed, keeps your community informed, and that is a key part to keeping our democracy on track. Listener support is the foundation of our independent journalism. It's the largest share of our funding. That's why we're encouraging you to give today, and members of our Murrow Society are encouraging you to give today for 49 more minutes. They are encouraging you to give with a triple match. That means whatever you give, multiply it times three. I'm not going to do that math for you because it gets complicated in my head. 
but it's only for another 48 minutes and you, we need to quick act quickly. Another great reason to give this morning um, is a WBUR t-shirt. It's mustard yellow. It's uh, a crew neck. It's super comfortable. It looks good. Maybe just by its own or under a blazer. I like the blazer option. Um, so that is what you get when you give $10 a month. That becomes $30. No? Yeah, yeah. that's right. Okay. You've got this. <laughs> $30 a month with the match. But uh, there are only, I don't even know how many there are. We started the at 320, but they're going fast. They're going fast. So you have to act fast to get in on the match and get in on the t shirts. Give at WBUR.org or call 1 800 909. 9287. That's right. It's 812 on a Tuesday morning and we are throwing stuff on the table like bam, bam, bam. (laughs) And we're doing it because this is really important. As Layla said, monthly gifts let us know what we can plan on, which means we can go all in on those big long-term stories that Mm -hmm. really matter. And if you think about what's coming down the pike between climate and elections and the economy, you know we have to do that planning. All forms of support matter. We are going all in right now on monthly giving because those sustained gifts allow us to sustain our attention on the big stories that you rely on when you spend every morning with WBUR. Triple match right now. Your $10 a month gift becomes $30 and you get one of a very limited supply of t-shirts that make you feel great when you show the world that you support WBUR. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Say, I will be one of those sustainers. Please do it now. And thanks. WBUR supporters include Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Ukraine has faced a brutal invasion, missile strikes on hospitals and apartment buildings, power outages, and now a dam break. The dam collapsed in southern Ukraine in a region controlled by Russia. It's on the Dnipro River, the great waterway that winds through the middle of the country. People downstream now face a risk of floods. Just upstream is a nuclear power plant that depends on the river for cooling water. For the latest, we're joined now by NPR's Greg Myrie, who is in Ukraine's capital, Kiev. Good morning, Greg. Hi, Michelle. Could you just start by telling us what we know about the situation at this dam? Right. We're talking about the Kakhovka Dam. It's on the big, broad Dnipro River in southern Ukraine. A video on social media shows a big chunk of the dam collapsed overnight. And early Tuesday, you just see water rushing through the the breach. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is blaming Russia and called an emergency meeting of his security advisors. Russia, in turn, is blaming Ukraine. Now, neither side is providing proof. And the dam, we should note, was damaged last year in some shelling. It's been under stress from record high waters. And we even saw photos in recent days where the water was so high it was flowing over the top of the dam. So whatever caused this, what are the potential consequences? Well, the most immediate is major flooding in southern Ukraine, uh, further to the south of the dam along the river. Ukrainian officials say there's about 80 cities, towns, and villages in this area. Uh, As well, we should note, some Russian troops. Now, we're already getting reports that water levels are rising rapidly and low-lying areas are being evacuated. And the land on the eastern side of the river is actually a little bit lower than the land on the western side of the river. So it's the eastern side where some of these 
Russian troops are that faces the greater potential danger. And we've already mentioned that there could be serious consequences upriver, too, where there's a nuclear power plant. Can you talk more about that? Sure. We're talking about this already troubled Zaporizhian nuclear power plant, the largest nuclear plant in Europe. Russian troops seized the plant in the early days of the war. There's been periodic shelling around the plant. The UN Nuclear Agency has warned repeatedly about the threat of an accident. It now says it's closely monitoring these latest developments. Could you tell us more about how the dam collapse could endanger the nuclear plant? So the dam is about 100 miles south or downriver from the nuclear plant, and the dam creates a reservoir to its north, and so this large pool of water cools the nuclear power plant. So the risk is now that the dam has collapsed, the reservoir is going to drain very quickly, and the nuclear plant may not get enough water for cooling. Uh, however, we should stress it's still too early to tell what the actual risk might be. Greg, before we let you go, is it possible one way or another that this collapse, this dam collapse is related to this long-awaited Ukrainian offensive. It's certainly possible, Michelle. We just don't know. Uh, Russia claimed Monday that it had rebuffed a Ukrainian push in the eastern Donbass region, and it said that marked the start of the offensive. But Ukraine said that was delusional, and it's not saying when the offensive starts. Uh, however, Ukraine has stepped up attacks in the east. President Zelensky praised you Ukrainian soldiers who were fighting around the town of Bakhmut, but he didn't say whether this was a larger offensive that was underway. That was in PR's Greg Myrie in Kyiv. Greg, thank you. Sure thing, Michelle. Drug overdose deaths in this country are at a record high. A preliminary federal count indicates they hit close to 110,000 last year. People recovering from addiction say they face a problem. Doctors treat them differently because of their history. Katie Riddle reports from Seattle. At first, Johnny Bousquet thought he had the flu, but eventually he got so sick he went to urgent care. After some tests, the nurses came back. He needed to go to the ICU, they said, immediately. I'm like, what the flu is this bad? And they're like, we're taking you across the street. Your A1C is higher than we ever seen before. Diabetes. He didn't know he had it. Bousquet, 45 years old, is also a recovering opioid addict. He still takes methadone. He says as soon as the doctor saw that on his chart, she started treating him differently. They're like, how you feeling and stuff? I'm like, oh, I feel awful. And they're like, we're not giving you anything for pain. Bousquet says he wasn't asking for anything for pain, but he did need the doctor to make a call to transfer his methadone prescription. She refused, implying that he just wanted to get high. Bousquet says after that, he couldn't hold it together. I could feel the tears coming down my face, and I was so scared about what was going on with my body. Like, I'd never been in ICU before. I was really scared. Bousquet works for a program called CoLead. They help people struggling with addiction and homelessness get off the street. He says he sees the same kind of discrimination regularly from medical providers towards his clients, like 35-year-old Nick Barrera. It's already difficult to seek out help for chronic illness, but then when you have that, that barrier there, it makes it almost impossible sometimes. Barrera is HIV positive. At one point, he says, he worked with a doctor for months on his HIV care. Then the doctor found out he was struggling with homelessness and substance abuse. The nurse came in and they took out all the syringes in the room and everything like that just right in front of me. And, you know, I, I was talked down to like a child almost. It almost became embarrassing to show up. 
So embarrassing, he quit going and stopped taking his medication. That led to a life-threatening infection and an emergency surgery. Dr. Herbert Duber is an emergency room physician at Seattle's Harborview Hospital. He says he has no doubt people struggling with substance abuse experience mistreatment at the hands of the medical system. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that happens. Does it happen universally? No, absolutely not. But does that happen? Absolutely. Duber is standing outside the operating theater of the ER. This hospital is downtown. They see many patients that are dealing with both substance abuse and homelessness. Duber says part of the issue is sometimes people struggling with addiction do try to manipulate the system. Differentiating that is really hard sometimes. We are human. We try to do the best that we can for the patients that we see. But he says he and his staff don't always get it right. There is not a clear formula that you can put together. You know, where we are today with addiction care is no different than where we were with cancer 100 years ago. That's Rahu Gupta, director of National Drug Control Policy for the White House. He says stigma towards people with substance use disorder is ingrained in the medical system. It starts as early as medical school and continues with government red tape that causes many doctors to shy away from addiction care altogether. Stigma is not just a consequence of providers, but also policies that have allowed that stigma to prosper over the decades. Gupta imagines a world in which addiction is treated just like any other medical problem, with clear screening protocols, best practices, and robust treatment options. That we begin to normalize and understand addiction as a disease, and we start to treat people who are suffering from addiction as human beings. But federal efforts to cultivate this vision are nascent. Nick Barrera says for patients like him, getting care without discrimination means being able to do his job. He's recently started working again, delivering food. You know, if I'm not medically stable on my meds like I should be, I can't physically go out and do a job. Barrera's standing outside the temporary housing he's been living in. He's planning to move in somewhere permanent soon with his fiance, and he wants to get back to receiving the care he needs. He's still struggling with fentanyl addiction. It is very much a dangerous substance, and it's dumb as hell that I'm taking it. He says if he's going to kick this habit for good, he can't do it alone. He needs to rely on a doctor that he trusts. For NPR News, I'm Katie Riddle in Seattle. Players at the French Open in Paris are battling opponents on the courts and toxic comments on social media. American tennis star Sloane Stevens, who's black, recently called out the racist abuse she gets. My entire career has never stopped. If anything, it's only gotten worse. I have a lot of keywords banned on Instagram and all of these things, but that doesn't stop someone from just typing in an asterisk or typing it in a different way, which obviously software most of the time doesn't catch. French Open organizers are offering players a new tool, an app for their phones or other devices designed to block social media abuse. It uses artificial intelligence to screen comments. The app is called Bodyguard. What's important is not the keywords that are used. It is very much who the message targets and what's actually toxic inside it. And if we think that it's toxic based on different criteria, we would actually remove the content from social media. Co-founder Matthew Buttar says the app goes beyond finding keywords. AI is a lot more complex in a sense that he understands context, which is pretty much the essence of moderation. So it's a very different ball game. And he says if there's a ball game that needs social media moderation, it's tennis. Being a tennis player is very difficult. It's an individual sport. So if you lose a game, that's your fault. 
you're very exposed because a lot of people are actually baiting on sport and tennis specifically, which means a lot of haters going after you if you lose a point, if you lose a set, or if you lose a game. World number one Iga Sviatek told reporters she is using the Bodyguard app. After tournaments, I had this ritual of going just to see what people thought about my matches. But right now I stopped doing that because even when I had, I don't know, two tournaments, one I won, the other one I was in the final, I went on social media and people were unhappy. So it frustrated me a little bit and I realized that there's no sense to read all that stuff. So the app, I think it's a great idea. There are those who wonder if the tech could be used to block legitimate critiques of public figures for whom perhaps a certain level of scrutiny is warranted. Kate Klonick is an assistant professor of law at St. John's University and she studies online speech. You can imagine how something like Bodyguard.ai could block a lot of politicians or public figures or people who maybe it's important that they see some of the criticism leveled against them from ever kind of seeing that type of public reaction. Buttar says his company isn't doing that. We don't remove criticism. What we remove is toxicity. The line is actually pretty clear. If you start throwing insults, being racist, attacking a player, using body shaming, that's not a criticism, and that's actually toxic to the player. And he insists the technology is working. Out of all the messages that were sent to the players, 10% of them were toxic, and we blocked more than 95% of them. With a goal of letting the players focus on the game. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Partly sunny and a high near 76 today with rain possible in the late afternoon and this evening. Right now it's 62 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. Working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Medical, regulatory, and other careers at vrtx.com. And MIT Museum, with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. At WBUR and NPR, we bring you the kind of journalism that makes a difference in the world. Journalism with real impact requires a significant investment from our reporters and editors and our listeners. Our contributing listeners provide the largest share of WBUR's funding. So when you hear a story that makes a difference to you, make a contribution to us. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you. It's a Tuesday morning, and you are listening to WBUR because that is what you do every morning. You turn to us to know what's happening and to keep you company. This morning, we're coming back to you, asking 700 of you to become monthly contributors. We are in the midst of a short fundraiser trying to bring in this reliable monthly support we need to do all the planning for the reporting you're going to hear next year and beyond. And there are so many reasons to give this morning. The big headline is that for the next half hour or so, members of our Murrow Society have raised the stakes. They are offering to triple whatever you give. In other words, whatever you give will be multiplied by three for WBUR, and that is so valuable to us. That is very literally what keeps us going. I'm Rupa Shanoi, host of Morning Edition 
Nation here with Tiziana Deering. She's going to tell you more about that match. But first, I'm going to tell you, you can give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Tiziana. Good morning, everyone. So so here's the deal. It's our end-of-year fundraiser. This is a short, targeted fundraiser, and our goal is to bring more people in as monthly contributors. Our Murrow Society members are all in on that, recognizing that our sustaining members, those people who give a little bit every month, make a huge difference in our ability to pay attention to the long game stories. And so some members of our Murrow Society have said, yep, this is a really important goal, so we're going to help. We will put some money on the table to invite you, you who have not made a monthly contribution before, to say, come on in, we're with you. You put a little money on the table, we will triple it for the first year to show you just how powerful that is. The average monthly gift is $16 a month. You do that right now for the first year, WBUR will get $48 a month. If you can give 100 a month, we will get 300. If you can give 10, we get 30. If you can give 20, we get 60. It is tremendous for us. It is our lifeline. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. This is Amory Sievertson, co-host of the WBUR podcast, Endless Thread. For thousands of people across greater Boston and beyond, WBUR is a lifeline, a reliable, trusted source of news, facts, analysis, and truth. When you support WBUR, you strengthen and extend that lifeline. You protect WBUR as a resource for a whole community of listeners who rely on us. Becoming a supporter of WBUR means that every story, every interview, every second of breaking news, and every moment of joy you hear, you made that possible. You gave that to everyone who turns to WBUR to help them understand our region, our nation, and our world. So please, go to WBUR.org and make a contribution to WBUR for yourself and for your community, for someone who might not be able to give. You are our lifeline. Thank you. Anne-Marie Sievertson, their host of our podcast, The Endless Thread. And she mentioned community. That's what this is about, being part of a community and being responsible for keeping your community informed. Some generous, generous listeners, members of our Murrow Society, gave WBUR their money to triple match your monthly contribution. They know it's important for you to be part of sustaining WBUR for the future, for your community, because our future is not guaranteed. It depends on you. So get your monthly support tripled now and give WBUR the resources we need to keep bringing you the important news you hear on Morning Edition. The math is so easy. Even I can do it. $10 becomes $30, $20 becomes $60, $100 becomes $300. Get in on it at WBUR.org. That's WBUR.org. Tiziana wants to say something. Only till 9 o'clock. You've got 30 minutes to take advantage of this triple match, so please do it now. And the phone number is 1-800-909-9287. to become a sustaining member and take advantage of this triple match. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. From Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. From Charles Schwab, dedicated to serving clients with 24-7 live support. 
The people at Schwab are committed to helping clients on their investing journey. Learn more at schwab.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. There are concerns about flooding and the safety of Europe's largest nuclear power plant after a dam was breached in southern Ukraine. Moscow denies Russian forces were responsible. NPR's Lauren Freyer says NATO's Secretary General and Britain's Foreign Secretary are among those denouncing Russia. From Ukraine, UK Foreign Secretary James Cleverly tweeted that the destruction of this dam is, quote, an abhorrent act. He went on, intentionally attacking exclusively civilian infrastructure is a war crime, he wrote. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg calls the dam breach an outrageous act. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is expected to announce his Republican presidential campaign today at an event in Manchester, New Hampshire. Here's NPR's Domenico Montanaro. There's a reason that Christie's kicking off his campaign in New Hampshire. It's a key early nominating state, and Christie's team believes New Hampshire, which is home to lots of Republican-leaning independents, offers him the right kind of potential launching pad for the nomination. But this Republican Party isn't the same as when Christie ran in 2016. GOP voters now are far more pro-Trump than they were then. Christie's team is well aware of the tall odds, but winning may not be the point anyway. His campaign slogan is, tell it like it is, and he wants to take on Trump directly. Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. From WBWAR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A sheriff in Texas is recommending criminal charges for the political stunt that sent migrants to Martha's Vineyard. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had the group of mostly Venezuelan migrants flown to the island last September. Those migrants were transported from the San Antonio, Texas area. The sheriff there alleges DeSantis illegally tricked the group into leaving, but the sheriff isn't saying publicly who should be charged. There's been no comment from DeSantis. The city of Boston plans to train 1,000 residents for jobs in the life sciences in the next two and a half years. At yesterday's opening of the Bio-International Conference in Boston, Mayor Michelle Wu announced the city will spend $4 million on programs to encourage biotech companies to hire locals. As the world's leading life sciences hub, Boston must be prepared to meet that demand by drawing on the talent that lives right here in our city today. The mayor says training and internships will be offered to those who are underrepresented in the industry. That includes those without college degrees, workers of color, women, and immigrants. Governor Maura Healey says she's looking forward to marching in Boston's Pride Parade this weekend. It'll be the city's first Pride Parade since 2019. At the State House yesterday, Healey highlighted the state's commitment to civil liberties and protecting the LGBTQ community. Where we see states and some governors going backwards, uh, taking away equality, taking away freedoms, uh, demonizing members of the LGBTQ community, I'm really proud to be from Massachusetts. Healy is one of the first two openly lesbian governors elected in the country. It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. 
Tonight, the Red Sox will visit the Cleveland Guardians. The Sox losing streak hit three games yesterday with a 4-1 to loss to the Tampa Bay Rays. A mix of sun and clouds today along with highs in the mid-70s. There's an air quality alert in effect because of smoke from wildfires in Canada. Late this afternoon, we may see gusty winds and scattered showers with a slight chance of hail. Tonight, mostly cloudy and temperatures fall to the mid-50s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with highs in the upper 60s. There's another chance of afternoon showers. It's 63 degrees in Boston. You're with WBWAR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Chris Christie declares his campaign for president today. He's a former New Jersey governor who has a very particular history with Donald Trump. In 2016, Christie became one of the first mainstream Republicans to endorse Trump for president. He even led Trump's presidential transition team until Trump fired him. He's been a critic since then. If we put him back in the White House, the reruns will be worse than the original show was. And today in New Hampshire, Christie joins the Republican race that Trump is leading. With us now to tell us more about all this is Josh Rogers, political reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio. Josh, good morning. Good morning to you. So Chris Christie has pitched himself as a candidate willing to take on Donald Trump. How compelling does that sound for the voters in New Hampshire? Well, we'll see exactly what Chris Christie says tonight, but obviously taking out Donald Trump, a figure of durability under some pretty extreme situations, is probably easier said than done. But Christie, unlike some other candidates getting into the race, is you know, a known quantity to lots of Republican voters in New Hampshire. Say more about that. Why, why is he well-known in New Hampshire? Well, I mean, it may have been out of uh, sort of desperation, but in 2016, he basically focused his entire campaign here. He did the things that you purportedly need to do to, to be successful here. He started early. He did a lot of retail campaigning. He took whatever question voters cared to ask him. But he did end up finishing sixth here and then dropped out of the race. And while there are anti-Trump Republicans you can find who like the idea of Christie mounting a kind of kamikaze candidacy, you know, bent on ending Trump at whatever cost himself, I'm not at this point finding many Republicans pining for Christie's entrance into this race as a candidate they see as a plausible winner. Another Republican who has been in the conversation over 2024 is the governor from your state, the state of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu. It seems that he'd been considering a run as an alternative to Trump, but he now says he's out. What can you tell us about his decision making there? Well, Governor Sununu spent the last six months or so really riding the circuit of Republican events, making their rounds on talk shows. And, you know, there's no real sense he truly caught on with Republican voters. He has definitely been successful here. He's he's in his fourth term um, and is popular with a range of voters, but says now instead of running in 2024, he'll work to steer the Republican Party away from Trumpism and towards what Governor Sununu believes would be a more successful path, particularly in general elections. Um, 
you know, it ought to be said Sununu's kind of a latecomer to this point of view. He did back Trump in 2016 and 2020 and has said that if Republicans nominate him again, he'll be voting for him. So there's that. And, and you know, despite Sununu's popularity with most voters here in New Hampshire and a generally conservative record, lots of Republican activists in New Hampshire don't much trust him. Some see him as too moderate. Some see him as too self-interested. Um, and so we'll see how that goes. Josh, finally, you said that you had not run into Republicans pining for Chris Christie's entrance into the race, but what are they pining for? Well, voters certainly are saying they want Joe Biden gone and and are excited with the potential of electing a Republican. But as Governor Sununu noted, Trump's numbers remain higher here and elsewhere than he and others expected at this point. That's Josh Rogers of New Hampshire Public Radio. Josh, thank you. You're welcome. The federal government is betting on a new technology to curb global warming. It's called green hydrogen. So what is that? Colorado Public Radio's Sam Brash went to find out. If you want to understand hydrogen, head to the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden, Colorado. It's raining on the day I visit. For Keith Whipke, who leads the lab's hydrogen research, that rain looks a lot like a future energy source. So lots of fuel from the sky coming down in the form of water. (laughs) We just need some wind and solar to uh, split it into hydrogen. This is the alchemy Whipke wants to perfect, using clean energy to draw hydrogen out of plain old water. Inside the lab, we see a device called an electrolyzer. Water is piped in, wires add power, then it splits the H2O into oxygen and hydrogen, which bubbles out the other end. The unique thing about hydrogen is it's a molecule. And so you can move it around physically, you can store it, it just stays there, and you can use it later. That's why hydrogen could someday replace fossil fuels, like jet fuel in aircraft or diesel in long-haul trucks. And using it doesn't release any climate warming pollution. But here's the tricky part. To make this kind of hydrogen, you need electricity. And to make truly green hydrogen, you need clean electricity, like wind and solar. And now the federal government is set to spend billions on credits for hydrogen production. That's thanks to President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, a massive climate bill passed last year. Environmental advocates are worried. Rachel Fockery is with the Natural Resources Defense Council. She says there's a real risk the credits lead power plants to burn more fossil fuels. So unless we have very strong guardrails around how this electricity is being sourced, we may end up with very high emissions. That's why Fakhri says companies should be required to build new wind and solar to power their operations, or at least only run their systems when lots of clean energy is on the grid. But early hydrogen investors say that could kneecap their industry. They've kind of lost the big picture of decarbonization by focusing on these narrow items. Frank Wolak leads the Fuel Cell and Hydrogen Energy Association. It represents hydrogen backers like car makers and tech companies. And Wolak says the real issue isn't all the electricity his industry needs. It's all the coal and gas currently powering the grid. The larger picture is we need more renewable resources, more clean energy in the U.S. as fast as possible if we're going to achieve our decarbonization goals. And in this super technical debate, Colorado might have an answer. The exciting HB 23-1281 up next. Earlier this year, state lawmakers proposed state-level hydrogen subsidies, funding to complement the coming flood of federal tax credits. 
State Representative Brianna Tatone, a Democratic sponsor, said the plan strikes a balance between protecting the climate and the flexibility needed to build an industry almost from scratch. We are on the right track. It's going to bring a lot of money to Colorado, a lot of jobs, and we're going to help reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. Here's the final deal. To get public money, hydrogen producers must eventually rely on renewable power sources. But the most rigid rules won't kick in until 2028. Will Tour leads the Colorado Energy Office and oversees state climate efforts. He says that should give companies some room to grow. It will take a while for economies of scale and innovation and learning by doing to help drive down costs and allow you to deploy at a really large scale. And Tour says that could be essential to confront human-caused climate change. And it's why he thinks Colorado and the rest of the country needs to get hydrogen policy right from the start. For NPR News, I'm Sam Brash in Denver. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And Endless Energy, committed to helping homeowners improve energy efficiency. Assessment scheduling at GoEndlessEnergy.com or 775-ENDLESS. WBUR built a multimedia reporting team to provide serious, deep, compelling coverage on one of the most important issues of our time, the environment. Changes to our climate pose serious threats to our communities, our health, and our planet. These threats aren't off in the distance. They are happening today, all around us. To maintain this team and this coverage, WBUR depends on you. Specifically, we are asking for your financial support. I'm Martha Biebinger. A contribution of $10 or $15 a month will have a big impact. Here's how you can help. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR, where we are in a triple match until 9, so time is running out. That means you have to act quickly to give monthly and get your contribution tripled by members of our Murrow Society who are encouraging you to step up and support WBUR. They want you to be part of the community that takes responsibility responsibility for keeping this vital service going. But that triple match is only available for the next 15 minutes. So think about how much you count on WBUR every day on the radio, online, with podcasts, all the ways you keep up with what's happening in Boston, Washington, and the world. Support that work that you depend on. And when you give this morning, not only do you start your Tuesday off right and maybe get a really cool WBUR t-shirt, but your contribution will be tripled. This is a short fundraiser. We're asking for 700 people to join as monthly contributors. Be be one of them and show us you value WBUR and want to make sure it's there for the future. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering. Good morning, Rupa. Good morning, Morning Edition community. Thank you so much for starting your day with WBUR. This is a short 
targeted fundraiser. We are building our sustainers. That's what we call our monthly contributors because knowing that contribution is coming in month after month allows us to plan for the long-term coverage. That's the reason you get up and listen to us every morning. Mm -hmm. Our Murrow Society members who have put this triple match on the table are inviting you to join them in sustaining WBUR. And if you give a $10 a month contribution right now, not only will they make it $30 a month for WBUR for the next year, but we'll be able to throw in a fabulous uh, mustard-colored WBUR t-shirt that when you wear it, you'll feel even better about showing the world your sustained support for WBUR. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. But act now because we are on a 13-minute deadline for this match. Hey there, it's Tamara Keith from NPR. I thrive on deadlines. I don't think I'd get anything done without them. Just ask my editor. If you're the same way, I'm here to help you out with a little nudge to get something important done. I'm going to give you a deadline for donating to this station. You can knock it out in five minutes, I swear. Start a timer. Your deadline is now. Here's how to give. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Our Moro Society members think it's so important for you to be involved that they have offered to triple whatever you give. So act now when you can have triple the impact for WBUR. People on average give $16 a month, and with this match, that monthly gift becomes 48 a month for the next year. $20 a month becomes 60 100 a month becomes 300 a month for the next year year. That's three times the deep journalism that is the lifeblood of our city and our region. Listener support is the foundation of our independent journalism because it's the largest share of our funding. That's why your gift is so important. You are giving us the freedom to report without fear or favor. We ask the questions you'd ask if you had the time to be out there asking. We do this for you, but we can't do it without you. So act now For the next 12 minutes, there's this triple match. You can have triple the impact for WBUR. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We are just asking for 700 new monthly contributors. I'm asking you to come to the table now, join our Murrow Society members, accept their invitation. And if you do $10 a month, wear the t-shirt with pride. It'll make you feel great. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. You've got about 11 minutes to take advantage of this triple match. Hey, it matters. It really matters. Mm 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at UMassMed.edu and members of the Massachusetts Energy Marketers Association, committed to reducing carbon emissions with clean, renewable bioheat fuel. MyBioHeat.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. On this day in 1944, U.S. and other Allied troops landed on the beaches of Normandy in France. They joined the effort to retake Western Europe from Hitler's Germany. This week, General Mark Milley is in Normandy for events to mark the anniversary. Your dad served in World War II, didn't he? He did. My dad was a Navy corpsman. He did the assault landings at Kwajalein Atoll, Saipan, Tinian, and Iwo Jima. My mother was also serving uh, in the Navy Medical Corps. 
Uh, she was in a hospital in Seattle, took care of the wounded coming back. And, and my dad's brother, my uncle, was here at Normandy. This is not General Milley's first visit to the D-Day beaches. It is his last as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the top military advisor to the president. Milley leaves office this fall. And as he visited historic sites, we got him talking about history and how it has informed his work. World War II ended with a U.S.-led international order that has endured for close to 80 years. And the 80th year piece of this thing is something that's stuck in my mind, you know, for a long time now. And you look at the international scene and it's, un it's under intense stress between uh, what Russia's done in Ukraine and the whole situation in the Pacific with the rising China and, and, the, and the stress that that's causing on its neighbors. It takes a lot of work by a lot of people to try to maintain that order. If that order goes away, then the world will be a much, much more dangerous place. He says past international orders have collapsed. In our talk, General Milley ranged as far back as the ancient Greek military historian Thucydides. He also talked to the present, the war in Ukraine, where the U.S. has led an alliance that has been gradually increasing military aid against Russia. General, you were quoted the other day saying that the advanced tanks and advanced warplanes that the United States is now willing to send Ukraine will not be on the battlefield in time for Ukraine's spring offensive, which follows a pattern the United States has added bits of aid step by step. European allies have added bits of assistance step by step, which is frustrating to Ukrainians and some other people. Does history tell you something about alliance building and some of the restrictions that imposes? Well, I think, sure, history tells you that. Uh, so I think it's key, Steve, to make sure that we provide the necessary aid for what is required on the battlefield at the time. So when Russia invaded, the key requirement uh, really was for two sets of assistance. One was anti-tank munitions and artillery. The other key thing, the, the military problem to be solved was the air control of the air and make sure that uh, Russia could not establish either air superiority or supremacy. And the cheapest, most effective way to do that was from the ground. I, I'm interested in this, General, because from the outside, we get the impression that some of the gradual ramping up of assistance has to do with diplomacy and alliances and even domestic politics. You don't want to go farther than, than your allies are willing to go. But you're, you're arguing here, I think, that it's about practicality and cost and what works at any given time. Well, I think that any decision is going to be the result of multiple factors. It's not a single factor. You've also got to look at the uh, the alliance, make sure you, you keep the alliance together all moving forward, shoulder to shoulder. Uh, and then you've got to factor in the practical military things like the cost and what the military problem is, you know, control of the air, that sort of thing. All of those factors go into the decision. Are there some ancient fundamentals of warfare that still apply even as the technology changes so much? Well, sure. I think, you know, if you look back at the ancients, you look at Thucydides, for example, and he tells us that uh, the cause of war is primarily fear, uh, interest, and pride. I think all three of those are clearly at play here in many, many ways with respect to uh, Russia. Their pride was uh, hurt significantly with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the movement of the NATO boundary from uh, the inter-German border between East and West Germany and, and then moving that NATO boundary further to the east. Uh, in terms of interest, if you look at Thucydides, you know, he can tell us all of that. But if you come closer in time, you go to Clausewitz, for example, from the Napoleonic Wars era. Uh, he talks about the nature of war and the character of war. So the nature of war is clearly applying friction, fear, uncertainty, the dynamic between the people, the government, the army, 
So that's all at play. Hmm. Uh, but also the character of war. So the character of war fundamentally changes only once in a while. But the last big one, you know, is between World War I and World War II with the introduction of mechanization, the airplane, the radio. But today we're undergoing a fundamental change in the character of war. What you see playing out in Ukraine, you're seeing snippets of that. You, you see the widespread use of precision munitions. You see the widespread use of electronic warfare. And we've got to make sure that we maintain our edge. We maintain our readiness for the future operating environment, which is going to accentuate long-range precision fires, artificial intelligence, robotics. And we've got to make sure we modernize our military. And by doing that, will deter any sort of potential aggression by any future great power that might threaten the United States and our interests. I'm wondering if artificial intelligence, which you mentioned, could bring an even more fundamental change, a battlefield on which people are not only using computers and weaponry, but the computers might be choosing when to open fire and on what. Could that change the entire nature of warfare? Well, you know, the nature of war is built upon the assumption that human beings are driving decision-making in the conduct of war. So it is possible in a theoretical sense. Uh, the United States policy right now, actually, uh, with respect to artificial intelligence and its application to military operations, is to ensure that humans remain in the decision-making loop. That is not the policy necessarily of adversarial countries that are also developing artificial intelligence. So your point uh, is well taken. And there's little doubt in my mind that artificial intelligence is going to play a fundamental and big role in future operations. And what does it allow you to do? Theoretically, it allows you to see the enemy and see yourself and process all the incredible amounts of information at a faster rate of speed than your adversary. And then, if you combine them with robotics machines, then you get a degree of power and synergy that could change warfare in ways that you know we've absolutely never seen before. General Milley, thanks for your time. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate it. General Mark Milley is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BioNova Scientific, a CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services for biologics. BioNova Scientific, where concept becomes cure. You may see some haze today from smoke from wildfires in Canada, and there is an air quality alert in effect. Otherwise, mid-70s and partly sunny with showers possible this afternoon and evening. Right now, it's 64 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gentle Giant Moving and Storage, employing athletes since 1980, now hiring. Gentle Giant is an equal opportunity employer. GentleGiant.com slash careers. What are the biggest threats to democracy? Well, misinformation, voter suppression, and how about the steep decline of local journalism? I'm Elsa Chang. WBUR and NPR believe that public media is the enduring future of local reporting. But we won't win the fight on our own. We need more member dollars to be your eyes and ears when important decisions are made, to bring more diverse voices into the conversation, and to be the ones to hold power to account. Become a member today 
at WBUR.org. Time is running out. Your window is closing for having your contribution to WBUR tripled. There are just two minutes to go in a triple match being offered by members of our Murrow Society. They are putting their money on the table to encourage you to act fast. Whatever you give before 9 o'clock will be tripled for WBUR. We're in our short June fundraiser. We're asking for 700 people to join as monthly contributors. That reliable support is what we need to do the planning for future reporting that is vital to your life. And when you give now, you will have three times the impact for WBUR. And if you give $10 a month, you'll get one of the mustard yellow crew neck WBUR t-shirts that will proclaim your support for WBUR. But they're going quickly. We only had about 300 left a few minutes ago. So there are many reasons to give and to give as fast as you can. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-922. I'm Rupa Shinoy here with Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, and you're going to hear us get excited in the next minute or so. Yeah, it is a minute. Some members of our Murrow Society are inviting you to come to the table in this 60 seconds and become a sustaining member of WBUR. They've done it. They're inviting you to do it. Join them. Say, this is the way I am going to show up for this news station that I rely on so heavily. And they're making it easy for you. They're saying, you do a little, we'll do a lot. Together, we'll make a huge difference. Your $10 a month contribution not only gets you a t-shirt that will make you feel great every time you wear it, but it gets WBUR $30 a month. Average monthly gift is $16 a month. It'll be nearly $50 a month for the next year for WBUR in the next one minute. The phone number is 1-800-909-9287. The website is WBUR.org. Our Murrow Society members know how important this is to the station. They are putting their money on the table to bring you to the table. Please don't wait. Do it now. Accept the invitation. Become part of the sustaining community for WBUR. We are there for you every morning. Be there for us and have your gift tripled. This is real. This is what you can do and have whatever you give tripled for WBUR. It is so meaningful for us. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 and thank you. WBUR supporters include The Huntington, presenting The Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play. Starts June 13th at the Huntington Theater, HuntingtonTheater.org. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.